Welcome back, guys. This month, we're celebrating 25 episodes of AIR, an interview podcast series with a different theme each episode. I'd like to thank all my listeners for the support over the years, and I hope you'll keep tuning in. Today's episode is about openness and the art of vulnerability, featuring New York-based ambient producer, new age instrumentalist, and holistic health practitioner, Laraji. Laraji's work is influenced by Eastern mysticism and a cosmic consciousness. Perhaps best known for his ambient and New Age experiments with the auto harp, his deeply emotional music is often improvised, allowing him to fully open up his self-expression, something that he encourages in all artists. Balancing his musical endeavors with work as a holistic health practitioner, he hosts laughter meditation workshops in New York, spiritual experiences that explore the childlike joy of letting go and being vulnerable, a fundamental in his life as an artist. So I wanted to talk a bit about the kind of importance of being open to new and different music as listeners like you've mentioned that in your own experiences listening to music from around the world that's been really inspiring for you as an artist so I'm wondering how can we as listeners and music makers be more open or maybe let go of some of the preconceptions or thoughts that we have that close us off to better musical experiences yes um, like what would your advice be well one thing I did for that Emma was I subscribe to um, an app called Pandora. Mm -hmm. And Pandora made it easy for me to access other people's music that I normally wouldn't go out to buy or wouldn't know how to find on the radio. But I usually select something like Laraji's Radio or New Age Music or Zydeco. So I search for brands of music on Pandora and listen for a while and I'm introduced to artists I didn't know exist. Also with comedy, I do that with comedy on Pandora. Lots of comedians I never heard of before. Other than that, being that there's an isolation period going on, and uh, um, when you turn on the radio, you don't know exactly where to go to listen to a wide variety of music. I know there's a lots of country music I would like to listen to, but I wouldn't know how to get to it. Uh, but Pandora has been my way, and I'm, I suppose, Spotify for other artists who just want to broaden their horizon without spending a lot of money or buying lots of recordings. Sure. Also, Bandcamp, I think, is quite good, if you're into that. Bandcamp. You have to pay to, to listen there, don't you? Uh, you have to pay for some things. They, offer, they do offer some things for free, though. I guess it depends on the artist. Mm-hmm. So what about in terms of, like, just being more open-minded? The thing that has worked for me, Emma, is meditation. I'd say meditation, yoga and meditation for me. For yoga can relax the nervous system, the breath, and the thinking mind. And if you drop into meditation, I get a higher view of my presence. It's not just bound to the third dimension, to the earth plane. I guess to take a, take a leap out of our earth planal identity and feel the more cosmic spaciousness of self, 
gives me the uh, inspiration to act with more spaciousness, tolerance, and patience in the body and the earth plane. So that could be uh, a stiff order for some people to ask them to drop into meditation like that without practice. But that has been my way of permanently expanding myself to be more tolerant and patient and uh, to understand that that we all come out of a common source. This is understanding that words don't give it much justice. It's having your direct experience of feeling the self, I say the pure I am. And uh, the way that I got into this first was sitting in an easy chair in the mornings, doing some deep breathing, and then taking off all titles that have ever been used to describe me. Every title, all the fancy ones, all the good ones, all the ugly ones, and sit still with what was left, which was this pure I am awareness. And there was no anxiety there, no anger, no confusion. And I realized that those things belongs to the titles that didn't belong to me. And if I take the titles off, I'm in a place of non-anxiety, non-judgment, non-fear. Mm-hmm. And that's such a yummy place that I would sit in that place for hours and just absorb it and become even more still. And that memory of stillness follows me into music performances and to music recordings, too. So it allows me to play a music for, actually, a more impersonal music, a music that comes from a side of me that doesn't judge personally. I mean, as you said, I think it's probably difficult for a lot of people to get into that mindset. Artists can help in a way. I think music can help people to alter their sense of time flow. Art can, staring at a good painting or uh, a good massage can help one get into that place. Uh, some good herb. (laughs) (laughs) People can find ways of getting into that place temporarily, but the trick is how do you stay there so that you can be there when you need to be there to avoid acting out or reacting out in the world. So for you, was it just doing this kind of practice every day? Is that how it kind of becomes a lifestyle? There was a little bit more to it. There was first learning how to sit still for 21 minutes and keep my eyes focused on a point on the wall. That was the difficult part, learning how to not fidget and uh, and not let the mind wander, learning how to keep still for 21 minutes, deep breathing, and taking the titles off. That was the starting point. That showed me that inner peace, that I could learn to be still, and learning how to keep the mind from being hijacked by thought, non-essential thought. Those were the uh, uh, essence of how I began on this journey. And I, I was inspired to do this because I was having mild success in the mass media and acting, and I felt like I need to fast track, get a sense of my spiritual identity so I know what roles I would, would not take in the mass media as an actor. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's no other way I can say uh, you could f- find your peers or your tribe and live in a community of like-minded people, and that may satisfy a lot of sense of being lonely and help fortify you acting out of your highest self-image. You once talked about your kind of first experiences 
making ambient music and you said that you felt like it was a type of music that allowed the listener a lot of freedom and that it gave them room to think and to be. So I'm wondering why is it important to have that kind of freedom or that room to think when you're listening to music? Like I know, for example, a lot of people in the rave scene prefer that music simply be an escape, like a listening space where you don't really have to think. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, that sounds like the same role that ambient does. Hmm. But for me, ambient took on different meanings after I was working with Brian on it. Mm -hmm. But if I come back to my original most uh, impressive ambient experience was uh, hearing cosmic ambient music in the 70s during a, during a meditative journey. And that showed me that music, you don't have to listen to it directly. It can be a backdrop that suggests where consciousness is. It can guide consciousness to a place and let consciousness be there. And the music is there and not insisting on being listened to directly. Somebody once called it wallpaper. <laughs> or music that helps to, de helps to define a space within which awareness is operating. I like to think of uh, there's a space beyond the third dimension. Some call it the fourth world or the fifth dimension that I believe music can be used to suggest to fifth dimension, uh, an ambient music that suggests a, a higher space in the third dimension. And if the listener is in that space, let's say at a party, many people are talking, I've noticed that the kind of conversation shifts to a more positive, bubbly, uh, uplifting mood because probably the listener is feeling they're in less of a three-dimensional closed-in space and more of a spiritually open space. Mm -hmm. So I, to answer your question, spiritual ambient or cosmic ambient music would allow the psychology of the listener to breathe in a more expansive space, less congested, less tension. So do you think that all music could accomplish that same thing if we were just open to it? Um, being fair to all composers, some composers aren't intending to take their listeners there. Some music is for dance, some is for releasing, some is just to commiserate or to go into nostalgia over a glass of beer. <laughs> <laughs> then there is music that can relate to the listener as a, an eternal consciousness stream. That consciousness supposedly has no ending or beginning. And uh, especially your Indian classical music that has drones in it and uh, a free improvisation. So the improvisation allows the listener to be in the present moment and the drone aspect, usually accompanied with a shruti box or a tambora, helps to present the uh, sensation of eternal connectedness. So I would say that the Indian classical music uh, tends to do more of that than let's say your Western rock and roll music. Uh, rock and roll can uh, take the sensual body and the, uh, the excitement body on uh, a good journey, but for the deep peace, relaxation, uh, the artists should have an intention of doing that with their music. Some of your new age music, I'll find on Pandora or a Spotify, music that has been categorized for meditation and quietness tends to be that. So your question, not every music does that and not every music claims to want to do that. Do you think that the listener also has to be a willing participant in order to kind of reach that space? Uh, yes. 
especially on the level of being prepared. Uh, a listener might be already a yoga student or a meditation student or practitioner of energy, and they know about they'll know about deep breathing or relaxing the self to really receive a, a meditative contemplative music form, or they'll prepare their space for listening to music. That less distractions or being alone in your uh, temple or in your car. So being receptive, practicing receptivity. Uh, if you're not practicing receptivity, you could have accidentally eaten the wrong food to be in a relaxed place. Or I'd say receptivity suggests that you're practicing preparing your space, your inner space and outer space for deep listening. That's the term, deep listening. Mm -hmm. uh, some listening doesn't require you to be deep. It can be very superficial, and that's maybe what you need at the present time. Social glue music, just to keep the social atmosphere uh, buzzing while you socialize and interact with friends. These are very good questions, Emma. I haven't, I haven't been asked these questions during all the interviews I've had lately. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. So I know that you also had a kind of visualization back in the 70s that really informed your way of listening to and making music. Yep. Uh, like, would you describe that moment as kind of letting go and becoming open and receptive in the way that you just explained? Yes, very much. Uh, music, that 1974 experience, which taught me that there's no linear time, so that music experience is still happening. I could say that it was, sometimes I think of it as a big searchlight or flashlight that you turn on in a dark room and suddenly the eyes see the details of the environment that was that they weren't aware of before. And this particular sound that I heard, or I'm hearing, opened my awareness up to a sensation of a dimension of space that I was not aware of before, a timelessness, a universal connectedness, between all things. So music listening itself can open the consciousness and awareness to the more non-apparent details of the present moment. Uh, specifically, the nature of the self, which extends beyond the limited number of years we experience in the human body. Or that Everything in the universe is connected because everything is going on in the same nowness. This kind of awareness can be su supported by a particular kind of music or it can be distracted. Awareness can be distracted from being tuned into this by, the, by a certain kind of music. Mm -hmm. And so was the culture at that time accepting of that kind of thinking or those kind of epiphanies? Like I imagine in the 70s there was a lot of people going through similar experiences, not only with music and meditation, but also things like spirituality or social and political awareness or psychedelics, for example. Um, were people generally like accepting of that? Uh, my closest qualification to answer that is that I was only aware of uh, there being a California scene, especially in San Francisco's, the hippies and the flower children, <laughs> and that there, there was a tight connection between yoga New Age Consciousness, Substance Exploration, and uh, the idea toward peace and tranquility, and also being aware that California seemed to be uh, pretty populated with spiritual 
interests spiritual institutions and spiritual communities. Mm. So I was just slightly aware that in California there seemed to be an openness to uh, the use of music or using music in conjunction with higher self-exploration, experimentation. Other places in the world I was not aware of. So I wasn't aware of things in mass going on at the time. And so how do you look back on the time in your life before the epiphany took place? Like, uh, what kind of fears or inhibitions were you holding on to at the time that was maybe hindering you from making your best music? Or um, Probably not being clear of who I am. Uh, having a spiritual sense that I'm, I'm a good person. <laughs> <laughs> and that, and that I've been given a gift of musical and spontaneous musical improvisation. But I didn't have a clear connect with source where I am. Source as being an endless, eternal omnipresence. I would hear about it in my Bible trainings and different religious investigations. But since I didn't have the direct initiation experience, I would I could brief it up say that I wasn't totally initiated before that experience to have my own understanding and to feel validated as a cosmic individual mm-hmm. it's a once having that in, that initiation as a cosmic individual that my music became simpler because i could pull it almost out of the sky mm. and uh trusting the improvisation free association project process and also being liberated from the sense of needing to have an official beginning and ending in music that uh, the whole is at every point and eternal is at every now moment. So I'd say that before that experience, I was laboring under an unclarity about the nature of time, space, and my identity. So I was bringing music forth out of joy and spontaneity. But after that experience and after a meditative understanding, having a clarity that I'm playing music or bringing forth music within a timeless dimension for listeners who have a core that is timeless so that my music can help them to feel a resonant with that core, a timelessness. So do you think that that change is something that we can palpably hear within your music? Uh, If the listener has that experience, uh, people who have had a deep listening experience, deep hearing experience, or initiation, they can hear the voice of their inner guru, their inner teacher, their inner calling reflect in the musical experience they're having. Um, Someone who hasn't had that experience could probably feel a mystical connection to the music. When I played in Central Park for many years outdoors, people who haven't had a, a real organized spiritual lifestyle will stand for hours and listen and get into a deep trance the music like a wall of sound can distract us from our distractions long enough to hear the main attraction or to feel the timelessness of the present moment and to notice the trees the birds to notice the sun to notice the wonderful uh, gift of life in the present moment so i think that people are prepared to hear it as a gift without being technically, psychologically prepared that can be pulled into that moment. And so what about for you? Do you feel like that deepened your love for music or uh, gave you something as an artist? Yes, it did. It's like uh, uh, 
initiation gave me an inner model of where the psychological and emotional human system can be taken. That uh, I'd had only heard about it. I'd heard about it in terms of the word rapture or nirvana or euphoria. But this gave me uh, a model that I can draw on when free associating, free association improvisation is on my desk. And I used its inner imagery, the psychological, knowing that the, the human heart and the, the psychological body can vibrate on a plane that's beyond the personal world plane. And uh, I would devise exercises of imagining someone sitting in my performance space in the deepest meditation upon that higher plane and then just channel music for that imaginary being until I got very sensitive of how to support that place and how not to distract from that place. It sounds like you've had experience like this yourself. Well, I'm not sure, actually. Um, maybe I have. I think maybe it would be more related to being on the dance floor kind of thing. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily call it something quite so spiritual. Uh-huh. Well, that would be trance. Maybe you've slipped into trance on the dance floor. Yeah, of course, yeah. I think everybody who loves electronic music has maybe had a similar experience at some point. And so how is the experience of finally kind of having that initiation and letting letting go uh, completely? Like you once you once called that sort of openness a kind of vulnerability that you actually hope to teach in your laughter workshops. Um, so what was that experience like of letting go? It's startling because uh, I'm being introduced to a functioning of consciousness that I was not very aware of before, that consciousness can function as a cosmic witness, that consciousness is capable of containing eternity, um, but in a, in a flowing sense, that consciousness can uh, participate in the awareness of eternalness and the unity of the universe. So that was what I let go of feeling, holding on tightly to just my third dimension a perception of reality. Going back to something that you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, you were talking about you you have this ability to just let new music come through uh, and it kind of keeps you from getting blocked or stuck creatively because you just kind of pull, pull it from the sky, as you said. Uh, I really like that idea because although I don't make music myself, I write a lot, obviously. And I found that the best way to get unstuck if I'm feeling blocked is to just write and see what comes out. So I'm wondering what are some of the best things that have come out of this process for you? Well, I use that process too. Just jump into it cold turkey. Mm -hmm. And usually after the first half hour, after letting go of debris and something starts to suggest itself. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, mm, this feels good. <laughs> and if it wants to happen, just know how to let it happen and not get in the way of it. So that free association and not knowing what's coming works. I consider spontaneity to be a, a treasure chest, a portal to an unknown treasure chest and to music that I never heard before, didn't know how to make. So that idea of trusting and diving in cold turkey, of course I would get my facility warmed up, do some uh, on the keyboard, do some exercises, some scales and arpeggios, 
or practice some uh, kinesthetic uh, principles at the piano, movement, so that there's life and movement in the, the music. Then turn on the recorder or go in front of the audience and let the energies that I've built up backstage uh, take over. I might do some five rhythms dancing backstage or do some Tai Chi or some uh, yoga stretch exercises. I might even scream anywhere to get the energy going. And then I just move out on stage or into the recording studio and let the momentum of that energy dictate, guide, and coach me along the journey. Of course, um, I work with electric zither, which means the instrument is already pre-tuned to an open tuning, so there you can't make any mistakes there. But the exploration of the release of energies in a, a pr prepared medium can result in, you call it chance music, beautiful chance music. Um, I read that your early music was often guided by what you call the what-if principle. Uh, what if I use this instrument like that, or what if I play this instrument with those instead of this? Can you talk a bit about that process for you? Yes, the what-if process comes out of acting. Mm -hmm. I think the Stanislavski math or the some acting method that uh, the actors use and have to use when they're asked to play a part that they have, they feel no connection to the character. Or if the role says, walk across the room and come back with uh, with the pineapple. <laughs> <laughs> so an actor, an actor has to create an inner justification in order to look real about it. So they'll I'm going to walk across and get the pineapple and bring it back because I have to check that pineapple for, to see if it's ripe enough for the party this afternoon. So it puts kind of a... a, a something in your body movement so that you can walk across and get that pineapple and come back and make it all look real uh, to the... So the what if with the music is once I was walking along the shores of uh, Coney Island or Brighton Beach here with my zither mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'm playing uh, to the water sounds, to the or surf lapping up against and getting the energy of water into my uh, performance because I heard once that the oceans are the neutralizers of our planet. They neutralize the energy so far as peace and tranquility and balance. So I thought, what if I could get the ocean to play the zither through me? And so that was my first experiment with getting the what-if principle into practice. And what if my music could be used to reflect a very relaxed breathing. So I would practice uh, using the zither simply as um, an indicator of the breath. And so we get uh, the five elements into my music by doing what if uh, the fire were playing through my zither, what would it sound like? And then another way of what if, if I'm walking through a, um, an art supply store here in uh, the village and I'm seeing what if I would play the zither with those brushes. What would happen? Or what if I were to use that guitar ebo on the zither? And there's something called an ebo. I don't know if you're aware of it. It's I've an never electronic heard of it, no. bow. Okay. And so by experimenting, what if I put those snare drum brushes on the zither and play it percussively? So a lot of what ifs have guided me in experimenting with getting the zither vocabulary that I work with. 
and I use the word zither loosely in exchange for auto harp. And I understand auto harps are not that easy to find in uh, Germany, but zithers are. These questions, I'm impressed, they don't really overlap on any of the other many interviews I've just had. <laughs> I do a lot of research. Oh, yes. <laughs> So what about your new album, Sun Piano? I know this is your first fully piano-based work, and I wonder if it kind of comes from a similar place of being vulnerable because it's a bit different for you. Like, is this an exposing way of making music for you? Well, piano has always been my, I guess, my first love um, because I could just loosen out, rock out. It's good therapy. About two years ago, three years ago, I was in California at a place called The Lab with a traveling partner, and we were setting up to perform Electric Zither, and there was a concert grand piano on stage, and I was asked, do I want it moved? I says, no, I'll include it in the program. So I included in the performance and recorded it. Uh, the recording eventually got to the ears of Matthew Jones at Warp Records, and he said, hey, your piano work sounds pretty ready to record. Why don't we do an album and call it Sun Piano? Uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, I went along with it. And the reason I haven't produced an album to date is because I don't know, I didn't know if I wanted to become identified with the piano because it, uh, the, the logistics of it, you can't play a piano everywhere in the world. Or I found out with the electric zither, I got invited more places, remote places, where I could bring my instrument where you couldn't get a piano, whether it's on a hillside or a small room in the village. Or... So I lean more heavily into the electric zither um, as my major touring instrument. And besides, I did work with the Fender Rhodes electric keyboard in the mid-'70s, and it was an awesome task to transport it around. And so just recently, I was inspired to do an album and I said yeah let's do it <laughs> I know that you recorded this album in a church in Brooklyn um, can you tell me a bit about how it came about and why you decided on this particular venue like is the church in general a special place for you as a spiritual and religious person it is there's I hold something sacred about the church interior of a church working walking around a church the whole intention of a church is to uh, bring the focus uh, on in our human experience to a higher or more internal platform. Mm -hmm. I started playing the piano in a church after Bible school on Sunday mornings on my own, exploring it. And my dear mother noticed this interest and had a piano put in our house and gave me piano lessons. Mm -hmm. And so I started out with piano in a church playing free form at a time when the church was empty. And here I am doing uh, music on an ultimate performance equipment, a very beautiful, gorgeous, grand concert piano in an empty church. So there I am making a full circle, and I'm being recorded mm -hmm. for uh, international release. So it is a, a very affirming experience and also something anticlimactic, that here I'm doing an album of music that I might have thought of doing when I was in my 30s of trying to become a famous artist. <laughs> so there's something calm and peaceful about this known. 
I'm grateful that the music is finally getting out because people have heard my music uh, at dance studios where I've gone to dance and if there was a piano there, I would be attracted to improvisation. And so there are lots of dancers and, and soloist musicians who are aware of my piano work. So I have the confidence that it would be liked by a wider audience. I read that your first experience of discovering the healing power of music was actually at church, uh, the church that your family attended. So I'm wondering if your time spent recording for Sun Piano kind of brought about a similar energy, given that you were in a similar place, experiencing kind of a similar thing. Yes, uh, the feel-good aspect of music, the ability of music to take the imagination and the fantasy onto other realms and to other locations and to relieve the listener from the pressures of one sense or one perspective of reality. Um, the listener might be caught up or congested in a thought of pressure, bills, um, a funky relationship, or world news is coming on too intense and not knowing how to escape that. And I feel that the joy and the lightness with which I bring forth this music or invite the music to come forth will provide the listener with a soundscape, tone poems, uh, a, sound, a sound journey or a sound bridge to temporarily or permanently relieve the listener from the pressures and congestion of what's going on for them at the present time. So I... I hope the listener can find that kind of relationship to the music. And when I'm doing the music, I'm having a very luminous, happy time. And see somebody being happy at what they're doing is, is a joy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So what is it like for you? Uh, I know you improvised all of the songs on the album. Um, and I know that for many people, improvising is probably like the most vulnerable act you can take part oh, in because yeah. you just have to really let go, you know. Um, has that process become easier for you over the years as you've been doing it more and more often? Yes, as I learned to let go and trust, uh, it's become easier and easier. If you learn some things along the way, one thing, improvisation, what people that I've coached on improvisation, I said, if you don't know where to go, then check in with your inner conversation. What are you thinking right now? And uh, Put that into music and your uh, mel melodic line. Let's uh, to give your melodic line uh, a sense of inner justification. Like, hmm, I just been to Whole Foods. I should have picked up some tahini while I was there. <laughs> hmm. Well, I'll get it the next time. I'll get it the next time. I might go tomorrow. I might go tomorrow. So if you're lost, <laughs> put something that's real. Your own inner conversation uh, to drive your melodic line. Also, I use visualization and imagery. I like to imagine people dancing. Hmm. Let's say with the zither, when I do this very rhythmic dance music, I'll imagine somebody someplace tapping their foot. I'll actually see the foot tapping, and I'll play music for a happy tapping foot. Or I'll see somebody somewhere doing Tai Chi movement and, or in meditation. So I'll use an inner imagery to guide the improvisation. I'm putting music in space to support someone doing a very tranquil creative work or body work. So I use inner imagery, and the imagery can be repetitive. Like I use this, the sense of an ocean, mm -hmm. waves lapping on the shore, 
or the image of people breathing effortlessly and follow the breath and reflect the breath in my music. So I use that music to drive my improvisation. In fact, I'd use it with children <laughs> when I had a class of young toddlers teaching them the zither. Uh -huh. I would use imageries like raindrops or train track or walking, walking rhythms to get the improvisation. Once again, the improvisation was taking place within a prepared medium where everything you did was harmonious. Do you think there's a type of vulnerability that comes with performance of any kind, like not necessarily just improvisation, but just performing in general? Yes, it's a, a, a vulnerability that can be frightening. It can even freeze one up. But it's also a vulnerability of being like a child and being open to uh, bold new experiences through music. Living in that vulnerability is... Uh, um, I could say there's a there's a thrill to it because things that sound like bloopers or mistakes they they help just just to suggest how spontaneous and authentic this improvisation is. It's experimental and it's ex explorational. And when I am in a place of performing with other musicians who are using me as a a guide, I find that my performance gives them the strength to be experimental and to trust, you know, there's no mistakes. There's uh, just what happens along the path. Uh, of course, in the old school that wants classical music to sound exactly like the uh, composer composed it, then uh, if you have the strength of your cosmic individuality, you can go over that same music and recreate it and remix it and a way that the composer would say, hey, that's a big mistake. <laughs> but a new, new listener will hear it as, hey, this is a groovy listening experience. So trusting, uh, that vulnerability is a real aspect, but I've gotten used to it. And what can I lose uh, in a studio? I trust that so much is to let the tape roll and then go back and edit out the highlights that are ready for public listening. So in a studio, it's easy to do that. On stage, one can do it too, but to some level, you can sort of steer around the bloopers, uh, learn how to do that, be vulnerable, but to uh, also have your index cards ready to tell you, here's something that you you can lean on right now and if, <laughs> if you're lost. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So do the performances that you do nowadays as a touring artist feel very different from the street performances and the busking that you mentioned earlier? I have a friend that busks here in Berlin, and she said that the difference between playing outside on the street and stage performances is that with the performances, people are coming to see you play, whereas on the street, people are just like, you know, on their way to work or wherever, yes. and you're kind of putting yourself in their space. So you have to be mindful that some people like won't necessarily be open to that? Yes. Uh, dandy questions. <laughs> the uh, Playing on the sidewalk, someone pointed out that you had a random public audience. People come and stand for as long as they want to, then they continue on. Mm -hmm. Or they can, hear the music, they can hear the music as an ambient backdrop. Right, They'll hear exactly. it from a distance and, and get up closer and see what the instrument is and keep going. Also, playing on the sidewalks, I was rewarded immediately. Mm -hmm. I mean, the finances were like the universe... And then you transform uh, a, a spot that was regular pedestrian walkway, you transform it into a money-earning and a performance space. 
Yep, and you're playing open, so you're not answering to uh, any time curfew. On stage, working with a more committed or dedicated sound support system, and people who have come to hear you, they can trust that the environment will be toned down so far as distractions, and that optimal listening environment has been prepared for them. Those are maybe some of the differences. Although I use my street performance years as a model for what to do on stage at times. Whenever, if I feel I get lost, I'll just say that I'm thinking I'm playing for a random audience and I'm exploring and experimenting as I go along. And that seems to be very interesting to listeners that watch me in the moment of experimenting and exploring. What about when you are doing uh, the meditation laughter workshops? Is that also a type of performance for you? The laughter meditation has become more of a performance. In fact, I've even sensed that laughter is a healing performance art to how, how to include laughter spontaneously in your performance. Mm-hmm. But the, the workshops, I find that the more showmanship, the more humor, the more playing around that I involved, it makes it more fun for the participants. So there are aspects of the workshop that are crafted in or, or written in to be you could say a performance, performance for helping to support the participants and feeling relaxed and feeling welcome and feeling brave enough to experiment with trusting their laughter or reaching for new laughter. So there's a performance aspect that comes in, especially when it comes to the relaxation and I and um, partners who are involved with the workshop will perform deliberately music to support inner journeying mm-hmm. or the use of the imagination to move in dimensions that they might not have been familiar with, the dimension of timelessness or the dimension of extraterrestrial moving beyond the earth plane. These questions are helping me to uh, reset and redefine what I'm doing here. Oh, good. I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah. That's probably the spirit of Berlin, <laughs> yeah. to, to, to push the experimental part of life. Exactly. Um, I know that your role as the leader of these workshops, you've said, it, you've said it's to kind of help people to let go and feel vulnerable. And you use the word childlike spirit. You mentioned this a bit earlier. Yeah, childlike. Uh, how do you get people to get into that mindset? Like, how do you get them to feel comfortable going to that place? Uh, it's easy and it's difficult. Mm. But it's easy because... We use the term play, um, spiele, spiele. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, and, and get the participants to give their definition of the word play. And after they've given it to me, I try to get them to give me the definition in a body language. That we all agree that it comes under this one, play is the spontaneous exploration of sensation. Play is the spontaneous exploration of sensation. And as we repeat this phrase, we get into different parts of the body and apply it there. Get into the feet, the ankles, the legs, the walking, the shoulders. And by the time we're finished with that exercise, people are in a playful, open spirit because we use play to invite the inner child to come out. When we get into a playful mood, our inner child wants to, hey, I want to be a part of this too. And so we get into the childlike spontaneity of trusting the spontaneous exploration of sensation at the beginning of the workshop. And then we use that spontaneity 
and the other laughter exercises, when we work on laughter for the head, for the throat, for the chest, for the heart, for the abdomen, that there's more of a playful spirit more than a serious exercise. So let's say if I'm using a, the laughter to vibrate the pituitary in the head, I will just... <laughs> now there's a playful spirit. And laughter in itself invites us to be in a light, luminous place. So to answer your question, we lean into the intention of being in a playful spirit at the beginning of the workshop with a deliberate exercise for opening up to the inner child. And so are those tactics or uh, is that kind of process, is that something that you also use on yourself before you perform or when you're in the studio just to kind of get loose, I guess? Yes, I do. I remember that uh, in performing the zither is to get into a playful, the spontaneous exploration of the sensation of physically interacting with the instrument, of uh, uh, using things on the instrument, of playing with the spontaneous exploration of the sensation of bowing the instrument with a cello bow, or the spontaneous exploration of using the voice in a certain way, or uh, exploring the voice as a sound instrument more than as an intellectual message transmission meeting instrument. So as a result of all these questions here, Emma, I'm going to come out of this bigger and better. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I know that you used laughter, for example, in your recent RA podcast, which I really loved. Um, So I'm wondering what role does laughter play in that setting other than just kind of being a nice addition to your mix? Like, is it helping you to reach, you know, a different mental or emotional state in which to play? Or uh, is it just like an aesthetic thing for you? It's... uh, um it's like making a good soup with music and deciding that if I throw in a garlic or onion or a potato here, it will make it more interesting soup. <laughs> <laughs> and I found that laugh in my music, the intention is to have the listening experience be an uplifting, healing release. And that over the years working with laughter, I've decided that my own laughter, that people have commented on it, and I thought, why don't I use it in performance to use it for its infectious, contagious quality to support the listener in opening up to their laughter, even in a time when they don't have anything personally to laugh at, that using it to pull people into the laughter, into the playful spirit. So it's a mission, a missionary work, missionary laughter. So how do you hope that people walk away from your live performances or even how do you hope that they feel after listening to your mix or your records? Uh, what what do you hope they're feeling or how do you hope your performance will change them? Well, immediately after the performance, I hope they, they're they too stoned in a trance to walk away. <laughs> they they'll sit there, they won't even applaud. They'll just say, wow. <laughs> but walking away quietly, introspectively, If they're artists, they may feel a license to be more experimental with what they do. If they're a yogi or a meditation or a spiritual leader, they might walk away feeling uh, more gratification of having been in a place with lots of people who have been taken to this still place in a a communal way. So it's validating our ability to collectively be in the same place and have a deep shared meditative experience. 
Um, some people walk away and say, gee, I want to experiment with that and get an auto harp myself, or I'd like to go home and re and invest more energies in a meditative new age direction. So I hope people to walk away inspired, uh, relieved of having had them been subjected to their ability to be in a deeper place, deeper contemplative space. Um, so there's my answer to that question. Is that also how you feel at the end of one of your performances? Uh, I feel in a quiet place. As a matter of fact, most of my performances, my ideal thing to, to walk away is to walk along a seashore and listen to the sound of the surf. That's my ideal place. Or to go backstage and be verbless. Talking after performance is, is effort. And uh, I'm still vibrating from the music, especially with electric zither music. The music is in an open tuning, so there's a, a harmonic drone still going on on the etheric realms. No, I'm still savoring. Um, so I walk away, and I've learned how to participate in conversations. And I feel positive, and I've, I've always felt like I've provided a good amount of listeners with a good listening experience and a significant, even a, a shift, a shift in their mindset or a shift in their perceptions of, of where they are in their lives. Do you think that that kind of energy will be different just because it's been so long now that we haven't been able to go to a concert? Like, what do you think will change once we're all able to go to concerts again? Once we're able to go to concerts again, it probably will be because we've developed a very strong confidence that everything is hokey-dokey. And that confidence will either come because people are taking uh, a vaccination or that we've learned something about this virus that it cannot sustain itself past a certain amount of time, a year or two. Um, also, there would probably be a, a residual sensitivity towards spaciousness of of breathing in the same space, of uh, hugging, and of close proximity. Although I understand in Taiwan and Indonesia where people are living on top of one another, that it's something that probably will still be there, a trust in closeness. Also, uh, maybe appreciation, people will come to listening with an expanded sense of their aloneness and their alone time. And during that alone time, they might have done some vision work or re reassessing their lives and their priorities in their lives so that we might see a new listeners are listening from a deeper sense of what they feel they want their lives to be about and time to celebrate or time to give pause and praise or the appreciation for seeing their stillness time, the three months or four months in isolation being reflected in music, a music of in introspection.